0: Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 68, Through the Eye. We are broadcasting live, well, live for Jesse and me from the Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House World Shedquarters in Blacksburg and Radford, Virginia. Jesse, we are doing a little bit of remote call-in show today together. You are over there, and I am over here, and...
1: We got yeah. two. We got two global shed quarters represented.
0: This is a power podcast. Is what this is. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, you guys yeah. know out Thank there God how Skype. You guys out there know how ridiculous these statements are when we call this global <laughs> and shed quarters and all that. We are literally in sheds behind our houses.
1: That's right.
0: Trying That's to right. trying to get something done, right? But uh, actually, we have very. I can't
1: even have my, I, I can't even have my heater on because of the, the, it, the the audio messes up. So I'm freezing out here in my shed.
0: And I think it was uh, feels like 9 degrees outside or something this morning. So uh, <laughs> thank you for freezing for us. Um, man, uh, Skype video and audio has gotten very good, Jesse. You sound great.
1: Good, good. Thank you. Yeah, and it's good to see your beautiful face even <laughs> from across the valley. Hey, can
0: you read my shirt, what it says?
1: uh dongle town <laughs> dongle town this Dongletown, is california yeah usb type c <laughs> yeah.
0: i listened to uh various technology podcasts and one of them uh we're just getting you know with the mac now there's only a usb c port and so they were talking about how many dongles they had and there, one of the guys said we live in dongle town now and so they made t-shirts and i bought one <laughs> because i'm a nerd like that well, Jesse, you look good too. Skype is uh, uh, framing oh, you please. very well. With a, is that called a cardigan? No, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, yes, I have a cardigan on. That's right. Real talk. Uh, on Sunday morning, our pastor was saying like how there's two cultures or there's two kingdoms: the kingdom of Christ, kingdom of the world. Um, there's not this culture. And, and then my son leaned over, is like, "Is there a kingdom of cardigans?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 with, oh with, man, with, you know that's it's cold. Tommy. Yeah,
0: that was pretty funny but yeah so man hey well today we got a special uh special segment for you um, we're
1: not that into it so sit right back it's time for review we talk books and tech and movies and things but don't care enough to write anything it's not a review <laughs> We're
0: not that love some Michael, so Bond. Down,
1: Michael Bond.
0: Michael Bond, professional me. jazz musician, giving up love on review-ish. the piano for Reviewish. Well, this is actually um we are we are gonna be that into this one I think the today's review is Jesse and I went with a group of a, a horde of men last night. How many guys went like thirty guys it was last like?
1: there was a, at least twenty guys yeah, we, we took over the whole middle part of that theater,
0: yeah, we went to see the movie uh nineteen seventeen. Which, if you're not familiar with it, I mean, obviously I'm not reading off IMDb or anything, but wonderful film, ca- um, capturing kind of some of the essences of the Great War or World War One. Um, not going to give spoilers to you guys, but uniquely, uh, the cinematography, camera work on that film was just beautifully done, tracking basically one character through kind of a this whole, this whole ordeal that just starts and goes for two two hours and plus and
1: man yeah, i don't just, think it's i don't think it's a spoiler because I think it 's out there to say that uh it 's filmed in a way as if it were one one take the whole way through yeah, yeah. So clear, clearly clearly it's more it took more than one take yeah but they're they, not cutting, the way they did yeah. it that 's right the way they did it there's no cuts it 's just one one point of view no, it was which, which 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 man the the driving tense Uh, it's really captivating the way they did that.
0: Yeah, me and Tommy had finished up wrestling practice and we were both kind of dehydrated and tired and we were worried we were going to fall asleep. Uh, But, man, no chance on that. Um, No
1: way, man. I was holding my breath for so long at different times.
0: Yeah, and not knowing where what was going to come and uh, all the kinds of things that those young men went through um, in the Great War. Just unbelievable. This is like, obviously, there were hints coming, you know, in the, you know, even the American Civil War, uh the the yeah. uh, the Russo-Japanese War that took place before that some of the use of the machine gun by the British Empire in Africa were kind of uh, i guess previews to what happened but really the first mechanized war where you had machine guns no man's lands trench warfare poison gas it was like hey modern science is going to save the world or destroy it that kind of mm. uh, that kind of war and and even was called at the time the war to end all wars um I wanted to mention a couple of books, Jesse, Um, for those who if you go see this, you kind of are inexorably left with this feeling like, ah, like I want to learn about World War One. Right. And so, yeah, um, two books, uh, one in particular is a little lengthy. I believe this book was published in the 1960s. By a lady named Barbara Tuckman, who's an interesting story. In fact, the beginning of this book, at least the audiobook version, will tell you a little bit about her story. Uh, but it's called "The Guns of August" uh, by Barbara Tuckman. It kind of sets up the the beginning, the geopolitical situation, and even the worldviews and the way uh, Germany saw itself and. And, and how that was threatening to her neighbors and how they then made alliances, which felt like Germany was getting encircled, um, which kind of pressed everybody into this kind of pressure cooker tinderbox that just exploded when, when a certain event, mainly the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, Ferdinand I believe of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was, was assassinated by somebody who had really nothing to do with the major powers They ended up fighting it out. But all these alliances kind of kick into place, and then just everybody all of a sudden is in this unbelievably terrible uh, mechanized war where tanks were invented, airplanes were used for the first time in combat. But The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman reviews that very highly. If you want a shorter read, there's a book called World War I, a short history by Norman Stone. Um, really quick read, just a couple hundred pages where uh, you can get a good kind of overview of that war. But any impressions, Jesse, that 1917 when you left? I mean...
1: Oh sure. Yeah. One thing that I thought would actually I think is really interesting about uh to think about with our podcast today is um there there was uh such a such an interesting contrast between uh, beauty and uh and the and the des- destruction of beauty. So that yeah. was something interesting where where um again I don't this doesn't get much away, right? Where no, they're yeah, like yeah. Killing cows and chopping down trees and burning, you know, buildings on retreat
0: like a scorched earth. You don't want to yeah, food, food. Yeah, to be and living. then
1: and then and then seeing the little, um, uh, well, if you if you go see it, you'll yeah. I think you'll find that the, there's there's these really significant moments of beauty that intrude upon even the ugliness,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, of
1: war that I found to be really uh, compelling. The mixture provoking,
0: yeah, the mixture of those visuals between like idyllic pasture. Uh, and then horrific chaos and desolation, just right, even woven together was just, yeah. It leaves you almost like um, aesthetically confused, where you're just like, oh, yeah. I want to just sit down here and like take a nap in this grass, but then you might get shot in the head or something. It's just, uh, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Well, highly recommended. I have, my thirteen-year-old son—it was his first R-rated movie—and he he even asked me, "This is this is just kind of God's kindness and providence, Jesse." Like last week, he said, "Hey, when I turn eighteen, I would like to watch 1917 and Gladiator with, <laughs> <laughs> with you, Dad. Could I do that?" I'm like, "Yeah, man, we can we can look at that." And then uh, Sunday, you know, some guys at, at at church were like, "Hey, we're going Monday night to see 1917." And then only took half a day to per persuade his mother uh, that, that he can go <laughs> see an R-rated movie with dad. And we looked at what you know the the parental yeah, guides yeah. that were available, and and obviously the language is rough, but and the visuals are rough. But he loved it, man. And our conversation on the drive home, and about twenty-minute drive home, was just phenomenal. Um, yeah. Just thinking about the importance of life. How would you respond as a young man in those situations? Because he's you know four or five years off from that age, right? Most, most of these guys. And uh, just, just beautiful. He, he was like, Dad, I, it seems like if you were in that, obviously the countries, the politics, the military is telling you what to do and where to go. There was even a scene right. we're like, where well, we're going to God knows where. Um, he said, that's got to be really hard, but you can't get bogged down into that. You just probably need really good leadership, like on the yeah. ground. And I'm like, that's exactly right. Because you get cynical and, you know, then you get into this thing where you just, you got to worry about your brothers and keeping everybody alive and getting home. Well, today, Jesse, our main topic uh, here for episode sixty-eight, I've just entitled "Through the Eye," and, and the thinking for this has come from, you know, uh, my oldest is heading to college uh, in the fall, and Jesse and I both went to college, and so we we understand a little bit of what the ideas uh, and ideology uh, that that exists in university campuses, even different probably than we went when we went through in the sense they like. Uh, free speech in some ways, people, you can't say something that's going to hurt someone's feelings or uh, be offensive. It's a little bit hostile at times and that, but there's all kinds of beliefs, um, ideas that are being taught, assumed uh, accepted, rejected, and then there's kids coming in with, you know, Islamic beliefs, Christian beliefs, secular beliefs, atheistic, agnostic beliefs, Hindu beliefs, and all of that in people and cultures and ideas being kind of flown together with this kind of background rate radiation of kind of secular materialism or naturalism uh, that this world is all there is, ever was, and ever would be, and that's the only thing that really matters, the scientific view or the intellectual view, which is really a truncated view of knowledge. And so I'm thinking about, you know, Kayla, okay, new piece of information comes into your life. How do you sort that, right? Uh, Where does that fit in? Does it fit in? Is this true? Is this false? Is this some sort of deception? And so today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, views of the world, world worldviews, assumed beliefs, right? Beliefs that control uh, our acceptance or rejections. Of other beliefs, um, sociologist Peter Berger called certain things plausibility structures. Like I, I believe these five things. So if I uh, look at this, well, that's plausible. Like if I believe in God, right, a miracle could be plausible. If you didn't believe in God, miracles are suspect, right out out the gate, so to speak. And so, a couple things that you know somebody might encounter. You know, you're rolling in 18 on a campus. You might hear stuff like this. And I have daughters, right, so you do too. Uh, Christianity is misogynistic or anti-woman, right? You could hear something like that. Christianity is based on faith or wishful thinking even. Science is based only on evidence, right? You might hear something like that. Uh, or it's narrow-minded, right, and ignorant of science to be binary and cis-normative related to what a man is and what a woman is. And so... I can imagine my own children hearing these sorts of things and I want them to be uh well prepared um as they engage that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and I think I think especially thinking about the college setting uh uh you you as a young 18 year old you show up on campus thinking that your professors are um uh, uh maybe have, have 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 a neutral playing field and they're just trying to help you think. Yeah. Because that's what they tell you. Right right,
0: um, right, they're objective and yeah, uh, yeah. they are trying to, yeah help you help, you help
1: open your mind and uh illuminate your world because you're coming in narrow minded and they're they're the open minded uh uh objective people but uh but certainly that's not the case, right, I mean right. you know and, and when you get uh, uh so both both of us read living in university towns right uh we we interact with um with professors and people people in the academic world, and you find out pretty quickly oh uh they 're not neutral at all right, right. they 've got their own uh their own commitments and their own bundles of beliefs that back them up and often those things are antagonistic yes uh towards uh really towards christian uh commitments
0: yeah historic commitments of western civilization we have a unique society in the sense we have open and free expression which we cherish which actually flows from a view of conscience that comes from Christianity but the West is always like hey free free speech free idea free inquiry hard won, hot fought many wars right fought to keep these sorts of freedoms Uh, but we use it to kind of hate on our own tradition like never happens like in a, a predominantly Islamic culture you know you can't really talk you know trash about like the the founding religious leaders I won't mention his name um in a certain context cuz you would you your life would be at risk or others just look at their their wisdom traditions more in a uh uh this is the foundation of our civilization and, and then they build on top of it rather than there's kind of this interesting thing in western civilization where there's kind of this tension uh between the past and what maybe be the imagined future um and again the, but the universities have Christian professors that are doing faithful work for the kingdom of God uh, and helping kids think and sort through these things. Now, Jesse, the point you bring up is very, very important because the central question I want to start with today is like asking ourselves, what do we assume, right, as we begin to think? Uh, because it's really easy for people to throw around logical or rational or reason-based. But uh, thinking rationally can lead you to lots of places, depending on your starting point and the direction you're heading. So, for instance, uh, one could argue, say, that Nazi Germany was hyper-rational, um, very, very logical uh, towards its ends. The problem is their, their, their beginning starting point was a fallacious, wicked idea. Uh, so that when they thought it through, so to speak, rationally, it ends up in uh, systematizing wickedness and evil in such a an, an abhorrent, unimaginable almost way. And so um, what we assume uh, as we begin to think is very important. What do we assume about ourselves? What do we assume about the world, the universe? And then we begin to think from there. So everyone, like you said, Jesse, no one's neutral. Uh, people grow up in a culture. They grow up in a family. They grow up in certain places. Uh, they have a certain view of the world. That's where the the term "world" and "life" view sometimes is used. Now that that phrase can come under some critique because, like, who is conscious? Uh, who is conscious of all the things that are controlling their world and life view? Nobody is. But we're right. all looking at things and interpreting things and and uh, accepting and rejecting things based on where we start. And so. Uh, Today, Jesse, I want to talk about this kind of idea of having an interpretive framework like in your life uh, that's shaped by many things, shaped by uh, previously accepted beliefs, right? Shaped by commitments, right, that people have. Um, Usually, uh, even people say, I have no commitments. They have commitments to having no commitments, right? So people have these things I want to call commitments. So people are committed to communities, right? Um, if you meet someone who's rabidly political on one or other side, they're committed to a certain community of people that maybe think like them. Um, people are committed to other people, right? You're, you're committed usually to your family unless you hate them, right? You, uh, your search of ideas that people find beautiful or acceptable or true. Uh, we have commitments to those things. Uh, we grow in commitments to the things we love, right? The things that we worship we actually build liturgies around the things we love and worship and we rehearse them you see that uh, when people tailgate and go to you know clemson football game or something like that i was going to say virginia tech but i don't want to get too close to the home idolatry uh, <laughs> yeah you know that
1: I, I like that you're including the the commitments to loving and worshipping because um you know the probably the best critique of worldview thinking or worldview language is the critique that it neglects uh how important our uh our worship activities and even just our um oh i don't know liturgies of the everyday kind of the, the 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 commitments that we have to uh to love that are uh maybe a little bit lower and below below the surface than just uh how we view the world or our you know kind of i i Ideological commitments right. to the world, and they're not. Uh, always... So I think, that's, yeah, this this idea of committing, and we we, we do love and worship uh, things, and that drives our our you know our our worldview, so to yeah. speak.
0: And many times these things are not purely thoughtful or rational, right? Uh, try to right. Co- try to convince a Dallas Cowboy fan that their team is not good and hasn't been good for a long time. And you'll find a completely irrational commitment to love and worship that makes it no really should sense. Be
1: easy. It should be easy to convince them. That's
0: right. You just need Stephen A uh, to convince them with his cowboy <laughs> hat on. Um, yeah, it's, other things people are committed to. This is very common in our society. People are very committed to some idea of self determination uh, and self definition. This is growing, right, in our kind of uh, the, the water we're swimming in as as Americans. That the idea is that, hey, I determine who I am and I define who I am. Uh, And that becomes kind of an immovable uh, belief. Like what if somebody else wants to define who you are? Oh, no, that's that's like one of the chief evils, right? Um, So that even, you know, thinking through how people think about God today. Well, God is great as long as God is part of my self-definition. Let God try to define me. Oh, I don't want that God. I want the God that's me. So the title of this podcast comes from a poem called The Everlasting Gospel by the late 18th, early 19th century poet William Blake. And that poem ends this way. This life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with and not through the eye. And so what he's getting at there is that we're not just supposed to build our life just on experiences, but we're to sort the things that come through the eye through the conscience, right? And through the mind uh, under, under the leadership of Christ uh, as we interact with what's true or false or what we're committed to and what we love uh, as we go through this world. And so all of us, Uh, need some sort of framework to sort and sift things, right? Uh, And I want to call these called well-earned and well-sorted plausibility structures because you want to build really good uh, uh, beliefs about yourself, about the universe, about God, uh, so that when other beliefs come into your world, you can sort and sift them with some sort of uh, wisdom and skill, I would say. Now, um, as a Christian... Um, uh, uh, philosopher Alvin Plantinga, uh, a lot of philosophers jokingly call him St. Alvin of Notre Dame, um, wrote a book called warranted Christian beliefs. So I'm not going to get into the ideas from that volume. It's a very, very thick volume. There's a shorter version of of those ideas out there. I'll put in the show notes. Um, but there's certain beliefs that, uh, we want to say, Hey, these beliefs have warrant. Uh, these beliefs are rational and uh, they really help us sort and sift, and what the, these I don't think are controversial for any Christian from whatever tradition. These are kind of a framework of Christianity that have been you know tossed around for millennia, and they're from the Bible. But I think if you have a good handle on these, uh, you'll be able to take other beliefs in or reject them uh, with a little bit of wisdom and skill. The first one is creation. And this makes a huge difference. Uh, For instance, in Western civilization, either the world and the universe and human beings are the product of unguided, unaided, impersonal natural forces, right? A natural phenomenon like quantum fluctuation created this and it all exploded and boom, there's nothing else. Or the world is a purposeful creation uh, by God, right? And so the Christian believes that the whole universe, right, not, not God himself, but all that we can observe scientifically, space-time uh, itself, all the universe, and if there's a multiverse, all of those two, uh, and human beings, male and female, have been created in the image and likeness of God.
1: I like that. You know, what you did there, Reed, uh, uh, I want to try to make sure I, i'm I'm interacting and understanding so because I like how you talked about uh um, oh I, it, it's it's teleological or it's right. towards an end there's a right. there's a purpose uh because not now in creation it's not just uh uh that God was lonely or um, uh an in, in unpurposed creation but that but that Creation uh, fits together with with uh, towards an aim, towards an end. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah.
0: That if if the belief in creation, right, uh, believes that there is a personal purpose to all that is. Um. Now, I think there's lots of hints to the personal nature of reality. That love seems central, and that that morality seems central, and there seems to be a good and bad in relationship in, in everything, and so. The fact that the universe seems personal and purposed comes from uh, the belief, right? The control belief, the uh, the well-earned belief that God created the heavens and the earth, created male and female. So human beings matter are special. Now take the, con- the, the contrary to that is that the universe is impersonal, right? Love is not central to that. That's a, a deception fostered on us by our brain and our nervous system, seeking to reproduce and survive. That's all that is love. Maybe it has some utility for a social grouping, but it's not central to that. Your universe itself is impersonal. Um, and then purpose. No, that's that there's no higher purpose. You might create a bunch of little purposes, hopefully not at odds with each other. Uh, but there's no ultimate design or telos, like you, you said.
1: Yeah. And I like, I like how you, uh, included their personal because, um, uh, even the, the, the sense of orderliness towards an end uh, isn't distinctively Christian, right? Uh, um, in some ways, it's Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. Um, and and actually, I think that's part of how we ended up where we are now with uh, kind of the, the default um, expressive individualism or self-determination because uh, um, uh, the, the idea of everything being uh, ordered and, and towards an end but without the the idea of love and personal um, uh, expression and responsibility um, was well, they, they they really need to go hand in hand.
0: That's right. That's right. When you separate yeah. the two, you, you're left with human beings that desire meaning and purpose, so they have to create right. it at a micro level. So uh, what you're seeing in Western civilization is, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The Judeo-Christian view, which encapsulate. Uh, some of the things Aristotle said, um, that view has now been fragmented. And so there's no God having a purpose for the world in my life, but we still need it. We still need meaning. We still need purpose. Uh, We'll talk about that in the coming episodes, Jesse. Of this podcast, but because of that, we're sought either seeking them through our communities or our tribes. So tribalism's on the rise, or we're caught seeking it individualistically, which fragments us away from each other, away from love and relationship, which which is sad and puts us at odds with each other. Because you'll have uh, many tiny kingdoms at war uh, with one another, Hmm. and so. But to believe in creation right, um, mm-hmm. means that you believe the universe has a personal purpose to it. And that changed your outlook on life uh, tremendously. Um, hopeful, hopefulness about the future. How can I be hopeful? It's all going to end in heat, death, and nothingness. Okay, that's real hopeful. But, or it's going to end in the purpose and design of God. Uh, second second uh, Christian belief is this idea of brokenness or fallenness, uh, that the world is not as it ought to be. Now, and I worded that really, really uh, specifically, Jesse, because we can say that we don't like the world, right? Which most people don't. Everybody, we got to change the world. We want to change this. And usually maybe people mean some political view or get my views instead of your views. And I'll change the world and make it better, right? Karl Marx, I'm going to change the world. Uh, Mohandas Mah- Mah- Gandhi, we're going to change the world. Uh, it, is this going to be in a good direction or a bad direction? We don't know. But the intuition is, though, the world is not as it. Ought to be. Again, this gets back to the design aspect. Um, G.K. Chesterton, obviously one of my favorite authors, a British journalist from the early 1900s, wrote a book in, I think, 1908 uh, called Orthodoxy. And then uh, he shares this idea about we kind of have this knowledge that the world. is good but isn't in a current state that it ought to be. It's in a fallen state or a broken state that evil has invaded. Uh, And this is a quote from Chesterton. He's a much better writer uh, than than us, Jesse, um, from the book Orthodoxy. He says, My haunting instinct that somehow good was not merely a tool to be used, but a relic to be guarded like the goods from Crusoe's ship even that had been the wild whisper of something originally wise for according to christianity we were indeed the survivors of a wreck the crew of a golden ship that had gone down before the beginning of the world and in this this imagery that there's like we were on this wonderful cruise liner with all this beautiful Uh, awesome stuff, but yet we're now on a beach with it all straight, you know, we're lost, right? We're on the beach with all the stuff strewn around. Uh, Ideas are confused. Things are broken. And we know the world is not as it ought to be. And if there's no oughtness to it, there's no setting it back right. Uh, We can set it different. Uh, for our tribe or this tribe, or fight each other in the great war till we make it this or that for ourselves or our own glory. Mm-hmm. But to set it right, even if we you know, were a day after Martin Luther King Day looking at a letter from Birmingham jail that I read yesterday, uh, The Atlantic published it again. Of course, you can find that anywhere. It's out in the public domain. But his, his concepts in there are pr- primarily and profoundly Christian in the sense that justice change for good is a restoration towards the way things ought to be and to say that you have to, there has to be a, a, a good that we can go to together that's real objective for everybody and not just for personal power groups or smaller tribes of people that want to oppress others and so um the world is not as it ought to be and to say that's, that is a christian thing to say
1: that's right and uh uh i don't have much to add there reed except for to make a book recommendation while we're on this, right? There's a uh, 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 Al Saint Alvin's brother Neil Plantiga uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, wrote what I think is the the uh, the the best book on uh, on this on the idea of uh, on what happened at the Fall, and it's actually called "Not the Way It's Supposed to Be: mm. A Breviary of Sin." Uh, and so, just a, I, I just I have found that to be an incredibly helpful resource in thinking about this. Um, so I want to throw that out there.
0: Wonderful book. We'll put that in the show notes for you guys. It's a really great read uh, because our intuition that the world is not as it ought to be is actually right and true. And that helps you sort the world when you see like, Oh, it, when somebody comes in and says, if we just got people in reeducation camps, <laughs> we'll fix everyone and make them right. You used to be like, Oh, that's scary because why we should expect this world to be a mingled reality of beauty and brokenness, good Mm. and evil, uh, desolation and restoration. Uh, the question is which project are we on? Because there many of our actions are on the process of continuing a, a, a pattern of sin and death. And there's other ways of living that build a community of light and love, which is the goal, right? That we should have. So creation, fall, redemption through Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ was the promised King of Israel who would come as a ruler that we long for, that is right, good, and just, wise in his dealings, who would take a broken world and make it right. Whenever that comes through uh, a human being, it is ended in disaster. Uh, when it comes from the restor- restoring work of God himself, uh, beauty the beauty of Eden, even what will supersede that is is what the Mm -hmm. future is coming because redemption that's brought by Jesus. Even his miracles, reversing the curse and brokenness of the world of sickness, disease, demonic activity, even natural uh, phenomenon, he sets his rulership over it, and he wants to redeem people who are sinners, right? It's not just the world is bad, it's we are bad. He wants to forgive us, change us, set us on a different direction of redemption where the world is, he said, behold, I'm making all things Uh, new, and that's the destiny of the world. And then finally, uh, restoration. You can use all kinds of words for this, kingdom, whatever, consummation. Uh, The end will be glorious. Uh, Evil will be judged. The world liberated from a right and good God, in this state of brokenness will be consumed in a kingdom of light and love where all the things will be fading into the past and a glorious reality will be brought about, uh, which we call the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught us that. Um, these these views, right, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, if we have that framework, we can then sort and evaluate things, important things as we interpret uh, life and we understand it. A couple couple uh, quotes, uh, Jesse, um, G.K. Chesterton said, God is like the sun. You can't look at it, but without it, you cannot look at anything. And philosophically, right, you can't say define God and give two examples. It just doesn't work. You can't. God is in a unique category all by himself, but illuminates all of life uh, because it's his creation, and then C.S. Lewis said, he took the same metaphor. Probably read Chesterton, I think. Um, said, "I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else." Mm. And I think that- doesn't
1: doesn't Lewis also have that uh, that great? Um, he does that great little article uh, something in a tool shed. Yeah, uh, I'll find it, yeah. but, uh, where he talks about uh, being in a dark tool shed and the light, uh, shining through the crack in the door and how, uh, everything is dark, but what the light shines on, he can see. So first he sees the dust particles and the light. So you can kind of see the light beam. Uh, then of course the light beam illuminates something. Uh, and then if he, if he, if he changes his position and looks, looks through or, or back, uh, at the light, uh, everything changes, in, yeah. in, and instead of uh, instead of seeing anything in the shed at all, he can see the beauty that's outside of the the shed itself. Yeah. And um, and I think he uses that in that same way to say uh, uh, there are ways that that um, you know God is is shining his light, and we can see what what he what he reveals to us, and then of course we can also see uh, the revelation itself, and then back through the revelation um, we can see. You can see the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of of, beauty of God. God, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas called that the beatific vision, right? That, mm. That's the goal of life is to see God, right? Uh, because in Sue, so you're seeing perfect truth, goodness, and beauty, all the things that are illuminated in the world that we like, oh, we long for that. Uh, we find that that comes through a person. And that's where even like the pietistic tradition of of evangelicals, like, hey, we have that in a personal relationship, right, Uh, is so valued because we relate to the good, we relate to the true, we relate to the beautiful, Uh, and even so bold to say, Jesus, who is the incarnate God of all these things, loves me, right, Uh, and died for me, sacrificially gave himself for me. And even watching war movies where um, greater love has no one than lay his life down for his friends, right? Um, We really understand that that sacrificial view of love where Jesus uh, sacrificed himself for us is central to the narrative of the whole universe. uh, And we long for it. We long for movies and stories to be told that reflect this narrative uh, because we don't want, we don't want just this topic, Hey, this world's going to turn into a trash heap and we're all going to die. The end. Like nobody likes that. Now, some people think that's the truth of the matter, Uh, but I do not.
1: Yeah. And even you, you'll see this even in, uh, um, uh, 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 a work like Cormac McCarthy's, uh, the road, which is about a, that
0: you read uh, that you read last year, didn't you? I did read it last year.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to brag about that. I read a, I read a book, uh, but, there thirteen thousand uh, uh, pages. <laughs> Stop, man! Hey, listen to episode oh, six,
0: sixty-seven. It's really good. We we advocated yes. for reading, and, and, and wherein
1: so, I brag about how many pages you inspired I read. Um, us.
0: No bragging, Inspir- okay.
1: inspiration. Yeah, um, it's a fine line. Uh, uh, really, the, the it's it's one of the most dark dystopian uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, 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 works that there are but there's this theme of hope that runs throughout it and actually um it probably defines it that there's uh and and they even call it the carrying of the light that there's uh even in this world there's there's a hope yeah um and so i think we 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 long for that don't we we don't want the story to just be and then we die yeah yeah
0: yeah to me um this, these things were clues to when I became a Christian. Like, wow, uh, that hope is not misplaced. Right? That that hope we we as human beings need it. Right? We need we need to live with it. Nobody can live in cynical depression. It's, it's psychosomatically. It's not good for our bodies or our minds. Uh, We know this. Everyone knows this. There's even an article we'll we'll hit up in a a coming podcast about why you should lie to your kids if you don't believe in God, because believing God is better for them because it's more hopeful. They don't think they're just going to be worm food in the universe, heat, death, and that the end. Nobody needs that. My question is, why do we need it? And when Hmm. you start asking these questions, why, why do we long for redemption? Why do we want to see uh, hope win? Why do we think love is central to being as human beings? When you start asking those why questions, uh, you're going to be led somewhere else other than quantum fluctuations and heat death uh, and a physicist telling us that so we can all just go jump off a cliff. Well, um, I'm going to close today, Jesse, and just our last few minutes with a with a ridiculously too fast question. Um, uh, summary about how as human <laughs> beings we accept and reject truth claims. Please forgive me philosophers out there. Uh, or if you have a PhD in epistemology, don't be disappointed in me. I'm not trying to do that right here. I'm just trying to give a basic uh, uh, piece by piece. How do we do this? So, so when we get a new piece of information, what do we do? Well, there is a role for reasoning, right? Are there good reasons to believe this or that? Do you believe in aliens? Well, I don't know. Is there a good reason to believe in aliens? Um, Usually the three tests for falsehood are brought up here, and I think they're still helpful to try to see, hey, is this not true? Right? You can test for falsehood much easier than you can test for truth. Um, first is logical consistency. If Jesse says, yeah, here's my wife, Jenny, uh, and I'm not married, I'd be like, what, what? That doesn't make sense, right? It's logically, categorically incoherent, so I can reject that as, as false in some way, or at least ask for clarification. Um, secondly, empirical a- adequacy. This is correspondence. Is this... Someone's saying have proper evidence. We shouldn't just believe things without evidence. Evidence is important, right? Uh, Does this particular belief have any evidence that corresponds to reality? And then finally, existential relevance. Does this connect to human life and experience, right? This is where uh, we intuitively, if somebody says, hey, let's all go kill a bunch of people and throw them in gulags, uh, there's something about that connecting to our human life and experience that says something to us that we should listen to. Uh, Deep conscience. If the consciousness is not seared, God can use that in us. So reasoning has its place. We should think through what we believe and why. Um, the next thing is that we also have commitments. I mentioned this earlier. Um, we always ask, how strongly does this effect and affect what I what I currently believe and my commitments, right? So, for instance, if someone believes in belief A, what does that entail for belief B? So if you're an atheist— um, and you, you know, decide to believe in God. There's a lot of other commitments that are affected, right? Maybe you're popular because you're an atheist. Maybe, uh, your family, you know, I know when I became a Christian, my dad doesn't believe, not, he's probably agnostic now. He's like, what are you becoming stupid? Um, there are consequences in life for our commitments of what we love and worship when we believe different things. And so, um, this is a classic quote from a, a man named Richard Lewontin who was reviewing, um, I think one of Carl Sagan's last books, this is from 1997 an overview of Buick books. And this just shows that people have commitments that they want to hold and not give them up. He says our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science. Now he's using this as some kind of uh, totalitizing view science uh, in spite of the patently absurd, Absurdity of some of its constructs in spite of its failure to fulfill many of the extravagant promises of life and health in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just so stories uh, like the evolution of whales uh, because we have a prior commitment a commitment to materialism that's the view that matter and space time energy is all there is It is not that the methods and institution of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. So here's what he says, Jesse. Science in doing the scientific method doesn't compel you to be a materialist, to believe space, time, and energy is all there is. He goes, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, that's before thinking, adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation And a set of concepts to produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, all you non-science people. So he says this, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So basically a guy like this is saying, I don't believe in God, and I don't want there to be a God. And I'm committed Mm. to this a priori, before thinking, right? I'm committed to this. He says the eminent Kant scholar, Louis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything to appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that any moment, the regularities of nature may be ruptures and miracles may happen. And he can't allow that. So many, many, many people that we encounter have commitments. Uh, Jesse and I have commitments. Like I, I'm at the point now where I want to believe in God. Um, so it would be it would be a really, really, really compelling case for me to get to give up that belief because it 's uh, the foundation it 's like the sun by which we see everything so just don 't ever forget that you have commitments, others have commitments, and you want to as a as a friend to others understand those commitments, understand the feeling of those, understand the emotions of them, the depth of them, uh, but uh, we we all need the freedom to follow our conscience to follow our convictions, and this is one of the great gifts of Western civilization uh, to have this freedom for following convictions because we cannot forget. We want to uh, accept or reject things with our minds. We want to reevaluate our commitments, have freedom to do so, but as a Christian, Jesse, we have a, a theology of conversion that isn't mere sociology, uh, that God does raise the, raise the dead He does change minds and keep us uh, uh, till the coming of his kingdom. And so our hope as Christians, right, and this came from even the text of a a sermon in our church on Sunday, our hope as a Christian is not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds and that by testing, right, testing, sorting, sifting, right, uh, you may discern what the will of God is what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we always, you know, I'm going to tell Kayla when she goes to college, hey, don't be conformed to every idea and thing that's floating around that you hear and see, but be transformed. Renew your your mind so you can think well, so you can evaluate commitments and have the freedom to follow God with a full heart of love and worship. Now in the coming weeks, Jesse, we're going to look at a few Things that were published in the Atlantic Magazine this fall about shifts in American cultural convictions, and I hope looking at those commitments that people are making and unmaking, and uh, will help us understand even a little bit of the controversies, maybe in the tensions that we experience today. And
1: yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this read because uh, this idea of um, bundled commitments, uh, even a priori commitments that uh, that come before. Uh, yeah. I think um, in my experience growing up, uh, somewhat uh, growing up in the church world, um, I wasn't I wasn't taught much about this, yeah. and so uh, you know I was taught how to maybe give a gospel presentation, but not how to challenge someone's uh, uh, um, plausibility structures yeah. or assumptions or pre-commitments, yeah. uh, which which in fact I think most of us are. Uh, we don't see them anyway. Right. Like, uh, you know, we don't see that ma- a commitment to materialism is kind of the bedrock of what we do see, which is our belief that science can explain everything. Yeah. Uh, oh, and oh. so so I'm I'm excited to dive into this. More. Yeah.
0: Or, you know, my middle daughter is doing an excellent job at using this method with her friends uh, in school. Uh, helping people see the implications. If they assume these beliefs, then these other things must be true. So if you assume that matter and space, time and energy, there is no objective morality, right? There is no future hope. Death is the end. And we need to help people be honest. It's like, Hey, uh, how can Dr. King call us? Uh, to change, moral change, if there is no morality that's really binding to all people, right? Because then you could say like, well, people are doing stuff just for power and just for privilege and just for influence. But Dr. King didn't believe that. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something helpful to remember that we're not just wanting to get gotcha moments for other tribes so we can make them feel bad or seem bad on social media. We're actually trying to transform and move towards more just state, but without... Uh, a transcendent source of morality, that is a bankrupt operation. And most people Mm. know it because if we're just, you know, uh, monkeys trying to mate and survive, what is goodness? What is truth? Well, it's just utility. Well, I can make other things that are useful to me uh, to have babies or to, to fight you and defeat you and keep my tribe going. It's a savage view of the world that unfortunately too many have imbibed in our day. well, uh, in the past, in, 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 say, certain communities, a theory of the world, theory of community, uh, identifying yourself societally, finding peace, purpose, uh, church and the community of the church or synagogue was a huge part of our culture no longer. So now uh, people find, uh, uh, this is a quote from the article we'll look at in the coming weeks, Jesse, that they're shopping a la carte for meaning community and a routine to fill a faith-shaped void. Their politics is a religion. Their work becomes a religion. Their spin class is a church. Oh, we're CrossFit. And, and CrossFit box, yeah. <laughs> and not looking at their phone for several consecutive hours is a Sabbath. The question is, mm. Is that Sabbath? Is that church? Is that religion? Is that uh, focus good enough for the human heart? We're going to say no. Jesse is dancing us off if you could only see him. <laughs> the Gospel Underground is a joint production of Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House from two global shed headquarters today. Review us on iTunes. Five stars are acceptable. Thank you for that. Send your comments, feedback, questions, things you'd like us to take up here on The Underground to info at gospelunderground.org. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture. And on Skype today, we hope to see you out there. Peace.